Hello, film nerds. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect movies with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium as much as we do. Today, the Ravnica and film worlds collide, and the best of the worst segment is back as Sullivan Harris sits down to talk about our strange and sincere love for the Dungeons and Dragons movie. All right, so before we start, the next mini-series, The LA Sessions is done from stage to screen, is coming in two weeks. We decided to give you guys a little special bonus episode, and the best of the worst segment is back after almost a year and a half off. We, we are finally bringing it back. Was it really a year and a half that we did the last best of the worst? The last one that I can remember is... Um, Cat in the Hat? No, that was the first one. Then uh, the, the last one we Spy did was Kids? Spy Kids 3, which came out around wow. New Year's of 2019. So it was like it literally was like January 1st of 2019 or something. So it has been way too long to bring this segment back. But you got to bring it back at like very special times. You got to you got to have just right. the perfect movie that is just a treasure trove of the guiltiest of pleasures and I I I applaud you for picking this movie because I had no idea this movie existed until you brought it to my attention. Here's the thing. I didn't really either. Like I knew that it was a thing, but I had no idea what it was about. I had no idea when it was made. I had no idea who was in it. I just knew that it existed. And just by the fact that it existed, I always wanted to watch it. It's like a Dungeons and Dragons movie, right? That's such a It's like a mystery bag, you know? Like, what does Dungeons & Dragons mean? It's a fantasy RPG game where people are creating literally thousands of stories every day in their own houses. So how do you condense that into a single movie? Mm -hmm. So one of my biggest things about this movie is that just in general, it is very difficult, I feel, to make D&D accessible to a modern audience without having to delve into so much explaining and backstory of understanding how just even basic like you know classes and characters work in D&D there's a lot that they have to cram into this movie in an hour 47 you know that's something i actually think this movie does uh exceptionally well which is not shove stuff down your throat and we'll get into that later but i guess we should probably just start with dungeons and dragons is a movie from 2000 yeah yeah <laughs> directed by courtney solomon a world-class director who I I didn't realize I, I had read your little letterbox review and then I went and did the uh, some some trivia searching and found that this this guy didn't really plan on making the movie at first and then at the last right. minute was put on to direct it and in that sense like I I feel bad for him because that's that's a very tough situation to be put in and a lot of things can go wrong in that situation it's just it's difficult so I I I feel bad for (laughs) for, him. I mean, that's the perfect place to start because this is best of the worst, right? Yeah. And I 100% believe that this is one of the best of the worst. Like, it's not Mm -hmm. a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but there is so much in it that I like. And I think that it's important to go over how this movie actually got made Uh and what the production was like to kind of understand where the people were coming from. 
because I right. think everyone was coming from a much more genuine place than a movie like this normally has. Mm-hmm. So I did like a lot of investigation into the actual production of this movie and how it got made. All right. I, I, I want to hear what you found. Please enlighten me. Okay. So like Dungeons and Dragons, right? It's an RPG game originated in the 70s, designed by Gary Gygax, Dave Arneson, who, fun fact, filmed a cameo for this movie, Dave Arneson. Oh, really? Yeah, in the final battle at the end, he was supposed to be like a wizard hucking fireballs at the dragons. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, they cut it. Uh, so Gary Gygax, Dave Arneson, they formed this company called Tactical Strategy Rules, or TSR. And in 1988, this 19-year-old teenager who's a fan of Dungeons & Dragons, grew up in Toronto, Canada, just starts cold calling the company. And he's saying that he's an economics student and he's asking them about their sales statistics, like how much product they move and what the cost of making the game is versus the cost of the profit that they make in return. And none of this is true. Right. Because this is Courtney Solomon, who is just fishing to try to find out whether or not they have sold the rights to the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Mm -hmm. And it's because he's a big fan. He's played it his whole life and he really wants to make a Dungeons and Dragons movie. He, he finds out no one has purchased the rights to Dungeons and Dragons. So he starts pursuing TSR and he's like, hey, I want to make a Dungeons and Dragons movie. I know I'm only 19, but I have this whole idea. I have a lot of passion and I think I could do it. And he basically gets like laughed out of every meeting he gets with TSR because he's like 19. Right. <laughs> he also finds out that like a bunch of other major movie studios have actually been gunning for the rights. But the owners of the property were just nervous about losing creative control. Because like the Dungeons and Dragons community, it's very tight-knit. It's very important to a lot of people. And they didn't want some movie studio coming in and just making some schlock, some fantasy schlock. Of course. Basically, by some miracle, after two years, Courtney Solomon is able to convince the studios that he can do Dungeons and Dragons justice. With the stipulation that the creators of Dungeons and Dragons will have final say on like directors, on writers. And so by Solomon's own account, like this exact, he said this in an interview. I found this great interview on dvdtalk.com from like a classic website. Yeah. From like 2000, 2001, 2002. And he says, any big name you could think of, we worked with on this project in the development stages. So studios had a lot of interest in this movie. Here's, here's the problem, right? Right. So this guy, this, teenager right he's like 20 21 at this point he now has the rights and he's going he's like traveling to hong kong on his own dime to get investors he's writing the screenplay on his own time not getting paid anything for it and this is all happening at a time that's very interesting for dungeons and dragons because tsr uh, was kind of going under at this point it was the 90s and they weren't doing well. Games weren't selling well and they were laying off employees left and right. And basically at the last second, Wizards of the Coast swooped in and acquired the game. You may have heard of them, Wizards of the Coast. Possibly, yes. <laughs> Currently the owner of Dungeons and Dragons and right. I think Pokemon and I think Yu-Gi-Oh. Mm-hmm. So like big company. Right. So since Courtney went out to foreign investors and didn't go to American studios, really, he didn't have any interference from any studios. But when he had bought the rights, like I said, 
It was with the stipulation that TSR would get final say on director's script, actor's story, everything like that. And those rights were transferred to Wizard of the Coast during the acquisition. Mm -hmm. And so apparently the lady who was in charge of Wizards of the Coast at the time was like the main wrench in the machine, okay? Right. So originally, like you said, Courtney Solomon was only going to produce the movie and that was all he really had interest in doing. He spent a lot of time meeting with a lot of directors and studios, which have you looked up the two directors that have been attached to this movie? I have not. James Cameron oh my God. came to them and <sighs> wanted to direct this movie. <laughs> what? This is like this is like three this is two years after after Titanic. This was gonna be yes. his next project. <laughs> yeah, well, Listen, you gotta you gotta know, like back in the nineties, Dungeons and Dragons, even though it was still like much more of a cult thing than it is right now, not like cult like eh, hey, praise Satan, like cult like <laughs> you know. Yes, I know I know what you friends. mean. Yes. Okay, okay, okay. This was like a big deal <laughs> to a ton of people. Like this was a huge, huge, huge property. Mm-hmm. So James Cameron came to them, and then the other name, which is absolutely insane, is Francis Ford Coppola. Oh wait, I did actually hear about a Ford Coppola wanting to do that. That yeah. is in, that is so funny because this is right in the time when Coppola's kind of starting to lose it and he's on the downward slope <laughs> and does Bram Stoker's Dracula and like right after that would do like Jack and so when he's like just this big happy businessman. So I totally see him <laughs> like wanting to acquire the rights to that and just seeing where it could go. But the wild part about Francis Ford Coppola is that, like, I, I, I'm looking up this movie, I'm researching it, I see James Cameron and Francis Ford Coppola were attached at different points. But then, when I looked at this interview on DVD Talk, Courtney Solomon says that Francis Ford Coppola worked on this movie for an entire year. Oh, wow. So he was, like, in at, for, like, yeah. a while. <laughs> like, he was in-in. Mm-hmm. But the head of Wizards of the Coast, by, like, all accounts, like, a couple people have said this, turned both Francis Ford Coppola and James Cameron down. And her main reason for that was that she didn't think they had the proper qualifications. Ah, <laughs> Like apparently in her interviews with them, she was like, well, like, can you even make a movie? Like, what are your movie making credits? <laughs> oh, Fooey and Pashaw. None of these like hacks <laughs> come onto my D&D movie. <laughs> like what? Yes, no. <laughs> that was exactly it. So Wizards of the Coast, Wizards of the Coast, Wizards of the Coast then forced Courtney to direct the movie himself. Like he had absolutely no interest in directing. He just wanted to be a movie producer, no interest in being a director. And they forced him to do it because they thought he knew the material better than anyone. They thought he knew Dungeons and Dragons better than anyone. And so Courtney, who is 26 and has <laughs> never directed a movie in his life mm-hmm. using a script, like an older version of the script that had nothing to do with Dungeons and Dragons. Apparently he wrote rewrites and stuff that uh, like included more elements from like the Forgotten Realms and more monsters and more magical items and stuff. No, can't use that. Has to use the old script that has barely anything to do with it. And basically all these investors were finally like, all right, let's do this. Here's the money. The Wizards of the Coast was like, all right, you have the go ahead. And he was just like, fuck it. Okay, let's make the movie. Like I'm, if, I, if I try to dick around and wait to get a good director on for however long, there's a good chance it could probably just fizzle out and never get made. So he just said, 
fuck it, let's do it. Now, this 26-year-old kid with no movie experience is in the driver's seat of a $35 million fantasy blockbuster. I was surprised when I found out, yeah, the budget is like $35 million. I was shocked when I heard that. Well, I mean, I guess it makes sense because like you said, the property was pretty big at the time and it was supposed to be... and. It's got like Jeremy Irons in it. Yeah. And um, so it seemed like it was going for this big epic, you know, early 2000s fantasy film. And I, I have to say, and don't get me wrong, it, I think this is a perfect qualification of the best of the worst because this movie is just so damn entertaining. There's, I don't know, there's just so much to get into. But before we do, we should also know the the reason that we're also talking about this is because uh, the season two of Ravnik Avengers is coming out this yeah. Thursday. So it's the perfect time to kind of talk about this movie. But tell me about, I want to know about your relationship to D&D as a game because my experience is definitely much more minimal than yours. I never played it until we did the first the two seasons of uh, Dingles and Donuts. Um, and I haven't been able to really play it all that much since, but it was such a new experience to me. So what is your what is your relationship to Dungeons and Dragons? My relationship to RPGs goes back a lot further than my relationship with Dungeons and Dragons. So like in high school, I had an art teacher who basically had created his own RPG system. We would meet after school, like me and this group of probably six or seven other students and we'd play on this art teacher's system which was honestly a really fun system i mean it's no it's no dnd but for something that was he just created in his basement it was very entertaining and we would just do these stories and every year it'd be something different like we did a wild west story once and we did like an antarctic fantasy ship captain story we did like a story that took place in purgatory i love that this just like absolutely blew my mind and it was the most fun I ever had in high school because it was like we sit down and we just get these sheets and it's just like make a character Mm -hmm. and it's like well what do I like what does the character have to do and it's just like it doesn't have to do anything like you can just make it can be anyone you want they can be any race you want they can have any type of skills you want and you can just like spend an hour after school every day playing this character, being someone extraordinary, saving the day, fighting monsters. And it just like melted my mind. Mm -hmm. So from that, I think my first actual Dungeons and Dragons game was after high school, uh, DM'd by Anthony Spirito, who was on the Dungeons and Dragons podcast with us. And just so much more cohesive. I mean, it's the fifth edition that I've, that I played and the thought and care that went into just making sure everything balances and making sure that you have all these tools and all these skill sets that just gel so well together and doesn't contradict each other. So you can just not even worry about it and just play. And if you have a question, you just go to the book and there's always an answer and you can just play. You can just play in your fantasy world. Eberron, there's Ravnica, there's the Forgotten Realms, or my favorite part is just making homebrew worlds, you know? So, mm-hmm. like, my relationship to Dungeons & Dragons is very much just, like, I'm a fan. Yeah. I love doing it. I love playing it. Uh, like you said, I have the podcast Ravnik Avengers right now, which I am DMing on starting in two days. And I have, like, two or three games going on outside of the podcast right now that I just play every once in a while with my friends. So it's it's definitely a huge, huge, huge part of my life. 
It is so much fun. And there is this idea that it's like the the big nerd thing to do is to play Dungeons right. and Dragons. And but like and I, so I had never played it growing up. So when we got together and did Dingles, I was actually like, oh, this is so much more imaginative and engaging that I had initially expected, especially since, you know, our like Dingles was so much based on Marvel stuff and had so many like cameo things and nods to other mediums that it made it even more fun. And again, the spirit of it is just you get together with your friends and just kind of let your creativity run wild. But you're also just kind of goofing around and having having a fun time with people that you love. And I love I love that. I love that camaraderie that comes with it. Yeah, there is like, there's a soul to it that I don't think many other hobbies have. Right, yeah. Every single hobby has like a community and it obviously has people who love it. But Dungeons and Dragons is so special in that you're with these people creating these, you're creating these stories, you're creating these worlds, you're creating these characters and and NPCs that eventually you start to consider them like your actual friends. You consider your character to be a part of you. You consider your friends' characters to be your actual friends. So like when something happens to them in the campaign, it hurts, you know? Like it's mm-hmm. sad. When, yeah. it, when one of your favorite NPCs dies, like that can stick with you for a long time. And yeah. I think that really, really speaks to how powerful it is as a game and how much personality it has as a as a as a community absolutely and it, it seems like it's one it's a community that only continues to grow and it, i don't think dungeons and dragons is really going away anytime soon there's there's still like you know there's f- currently five editions of the of the game and so many offshoots and rpgs are just th- there's so much room for creativity now that right and if anything the community is doing nothing but growing which yeah. i love to see like when i was i did a uh, semester in Ireland last year. Or was that this year? No, that was last year. That was last year. I did a semester in Ireland last year. And for one of my classes, I had to make a short documentary. And I did it on Dungeons and Dragons because there was a shop right in Dublin that had people meeting every single week. And there was like probably 12 games going on in this little shop at one time. Oh my God. I interviewed a couple of them and uh, got their stories about when they started playing and all that junk. But what really surprised me is just like the gradient of people that you see playing the game now. Like every single age, every single race, people who look like they run with the more quote unquote cool crowds, people who look like they've run with the more quote unquote geeky crowds. Like it's people love this game now. And mm. I mean, a lot of it is probably thanks to things like Stranger Things, which brought it into like the popular zeitgeist, but good. Yeah, like I I love that you know everyone's playing this. I love that the people who probably twenty years ago would have been like stuffing our faces in lockers are now sitting right <laughs> beside us playing Joe Blob the Orc. You know, <laughs> Joe Blob the Orc. We're gonna patent that. It'll be in the next season of Ravnica <laughs> yeah, at some point. <laughs> that's the, I'm gonna have to put Joe Blob the Orc in as a as a little cameo <laughs> for you film <laughs> listeners out there. Uh, um, but no, you're definitely right. The fact that we've seen it more and more in popular culture, especially in movies and TV, gets people more interested and brings it out of j- just like it puts it more into the mainstream. And, and that's that's a great thing because the spirit of it 
like you said, is very positive and just it's it's just filled with creativity. Yeah, it's just pure creative energy. Yeah. And it's a great way to start, you know, kind of getting your your feet into into storytelling and but like creating characters and being in the mindset of, okay, how am I gonna solve this problem using like well the skills that I have? I could do this, but I might I might lose, but I could definitely mm-hmm. like maybe like do like a strength check and um, push us forward. So it's it there is like a, an also like an inner battle, which is, you know, it is it's so much fun. Like it's great. I love it. Yeah. There's a reason it's been around for so long. Mm-hmm. And now we have this movie, which again, so I watched it for the first time last night and I I didn't know what to expect going into it. Well, the only two things I had in mind were the poster. Right. Which is in, which is incredible. Uh, it's a masterpiece of graphic design. And what you told me that you know you have a good movie when the price to buy it is only a dollar more than the price to rent it. <laughs> right. The price to rent the movie on YouTube was $4 and the price to buy it was 5 So obviously my bank account went from $5 to $0. <laughs> Hey, I mean, it's a worthy purchase. You're gonna be, you're you're gonna be going back to this movie a lot more than Under the Silver Lake. This will this will be your new comfort movie. <laughs> I it does kind of scratch that itch for me though. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I wa- when I was watching it, I was completely engaged first of all, which I wasn't expecting, and I was like, this is something that I could just put on and watch kind of whenever. Like it's just entertaining. I think most of the performances are super fun. And I think the energy is there. Like, I think everyone just on this movie looks like they're having the time of their lives, even though they're working with maybe not the most ideal script and not the most experienced director. Right. Yeah. There is a lot to, there's a lot to get lost in, in this movie. Before we get into breaking down the movie, I want to know what does the term, because this is your first best of the worst episode, um, which is a, a little surprising. Um, but I want to know what... <laughs> I do love shitty movies. Yeah. Why do you love certain movies that may be bad or seen as bad, but you just enjoy? What do you get out of a guilty pleasure? What does that term mean to you? Well, I mean, I always try to go into movies with as open of a mind as possible. Like, if I, especially if I see that a movie is like, like this movie is considered to be one of the worst movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And so if I see that, I'm automatically going into it like, I'm giving this movie the ultimate benefit of the doubt. Right. Because think about any bad movie. Like most of the time, there is somebody behind that movie that is passionate about it, that is really trying to do something. Like this is their creative vision. Like even a movie, like terrible movies, like Geostorm, right? Right. Or like any Roland Emmerich movie. <laughs> it's, or no, that was the other guy, right? No, yeah, that was the like the stunt coordinator on all the Roland Emmerich movies or something like that. But no, I, yeah, I, 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 I get what you mean. But no matter the movie, no matter how bad it is or how bad it was critically perceived to be, there has to be some kind of passion behind it. And I try to see it every movie from that point of view. And so, like, most of the movies that I consider to be guilty pleasures or consider to be best of the worst are movies that were critically panned, but they're creative, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So no, it's like, yeah. even if it's bad, you can see everything the director was trying to do, and you can see how much thought he put into all of it, and you can see, like, all of the work that went into making the sets and all the little decisions that they made. And I think, like, this movie's a glowing example of it. It's a brand new fantasy world that he came up with by himself. It may not be the best, but it's like 
just oozing with the creative energy that I want from like a Dungeons and Dragons movie. And that's such a great positive outlook to have going into movies. And I think going to film school and trying to make things and just knowing how hard it is to get a movie made. And (laughs) that's a big part of it has also from my perspective too, made me like give movies sometimes the benefit of the doubt because you know, it's, it's really, really tough. And it's also the idea that, that we talked about with this director. It's his first movie. He's 26. He wasn't expecting mm-hmm. to direct it. And for a first movie, you know, I, I can commend him. This is this. It could have been a lot worse. And yeah, there is a lot of direction in this movie that I actually really, really like. And I think is like leagues ahead of where he should have been at 26 making his first movie. Yeah. Also, I'm glad you mentioned film school. Because another one of the big reasons why I started looking at movies like or stopped going into bad movies being like, this movie's going to suck. Like, let's laugh at it the whole time. It's because I'm sorry to say it, but there's a lot of people in film school who will just like completely shit on every single movie. Yeah. And it's like, all right, Tony, I saw your short film <laughs> the other day. Like, and you're over here saying that Dungeons and Dragons is the worst movie ever made. Like, uh, your movie is a lot worse than Dungeons and Dragons. So just sh- sh- chill your roll for a second. Chill your roll. <laughs> chill your roll. Let's <laughs> like look at this from a reasonable perspective. Yeah. And also, like, I mean, this gets into a whole other conversation of like the, the cine bros and um, all like the stereotypes that come with going to film school, which I completely understand, but you, you are right. There are people in film school who feel that they have the right, I guess, to be that they should be super critical on every single movie, but we also and have, they to- have the ultimate final opinion on right. every single movie that comes out. Right. And, and don't get me wrong. I am, I, I am, I can be very, very passionate about my opinions on movies, but also you have to understand that it is totally okay. If, a, if, if a movie is either not good or as, you know, well-made as other movies and you still enjoy it, there is nothing wrong with that. And what's like, what's wrong with going into like this movie, there's so much that you can find in it. It'd be like, this doesn't like they're breaking the 180 degree rule. Like this, (laughs) like what what the fuck? (laughs) And, and guess what? I was having such a great time watching this movie last night that I was like, I don't really give a shit about the technical, uh, aspects that a, a teacher would be yeah. like, why, why did you? Why didn't you do it this way? Like, I don't care. Okay, like yeah. I, I like what I are like all what of I these? Like. These rules are just like it's like the argument that time doesn't exist and it's just a construct created by humans. It's like what are all of these rules that were being taught in film school and why do they mean so much and why are they the end all be all of why a movie is good or bad? Like right. it doesn't matter as long as because. I worry a lot. Like you, you have always been uh, very put off by some of my movie opinions, and <laughs> I mean, I worry often that people think that I like certain movies just to be contrarian. You know, like because I love this movie. I honestly really, really, really liked Cats. Mm-hmm. Like I love the Mario Brothers movie as another great example. I was going to equate this movie to the Super Mario Brothers movie in like oh, a, a, lot can, of, a lot of different ways. We can compare ways. that, mm-hmm. but. The thing is, is like what I look for most in a movie is it's not even whether or not I'm having a great time. It's not even whether or not the movie is like good from all the rules perspective. It's I just love to see creativity flow. I love to see people with original ideas 
that they've thought out thoroughly and completely, just putting them on the big screen. And where's a better place to talk about that than Dungeons & Dragons, which is just a pure creative force of a property? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just to clear, just to clarify, I've never thought that you liked something just to be contrarian. I've always felt that you have been are, are very honest and genuine about your about your opinions. Just some like sometimes oh. I'm like, oh, I never. OK, I, I definitely don't agree with that, but I understand what you're saying. You're like, oh, shit, this guy saw cats in theaters four times. <laughs> I can't I still can't believe that that's that's crazy but either way that just comes back to the whole point of the of the best of the worst is that even in movies like this we can still get something out of them and I mean that's kind of the goal with movies in general is to have a personal experience and you know some movies don't have that but when there's just I just love bad movies that are just actually enjoyable and I and are still a fun time like there's so many movies that fit that bill that's the whole reason we started this segment all right well with that why don't we get right into the critical breakdown there's a lot to get into um I I want to start we start with the plot Yeah, this was one thing that I think, yeah, we should definitely need to start with the plot because there were a lot of things that I was confused about at first, mainly because here's here's one of the things that I think is, again, difficult about adapting Dungeons and Dragons, especially with because you said this is um, his own made up world, like right. the the area of is ismar or something ismar has like ismir Ismir has like eight different pronunciations throughout this movie like um (laughs) that that's something that 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 he created that's not in like an actual like D campaign or in like a book or something okay which is one of the things that critics pointed to about this movie was just like it's called dungeons and dragons the only thing i'm seeing from dungeons and dragons here is like two beholders in one scene. Well, okay. So the story is Jeremy Irons' character needs this mage Profian. Profian. I don't yeah. remember how it's pronounced. I think it's Profian. Profian. Yeah. He needs to get this rod of, uh, what's it called? It's like, it has a dragon's egg and he can control. Yeah. It's a rod that can control specifically red dragons. And right off the bat, we get a CGI dragon in a dungeon. Like we've met our quota. Like we <laughs> yeah. can stop there. <laughs> you know, that's out. It's honestly genius. People see Dungeons and Dragons. What are they expecting? They're expecting a dungeon. They're expecting a dragon. Check those boxes within the First five minutes in one you're done. shot. You can do yeah. whatever you want afterwards. <laughs> and so what was the thing like the this the rod that he used early on didn't work, like wasn't the real thing or something? Yeah, I think the idea is that he had all of these mages trying to manufacture a, a rod and mm-hmm. the manufactured rod didn't work. So he has to find the real one. Uh, scepter. Let's call it a scepter. We'll call it a scepter. Yeah. I can't keep calling it a rod. No, I, they call it a, they, the word rod is used a little too much in this movie. Um, so it's basically just a big fetch quest movie, which is you've got Jeremy Irons who wants to control Izmir with red dragons. And then you've got these two rogue thieves who, with the help of, a, of another mage, are trying to get to the, the dragon scepter before he can. And that's pretty much it. Here's here's what's interesting about this movie is structurally it hits all of the beats that I want or like hits all like checks off all the boxes that I want from a guilty pleasure movie. It, ha- it has everything maybe like more so mo- some more than others, um, but it 
it has all of it. And one of them is clear influences slash ripoffs from other movies. So there's a lot. There's like the story is essentially very similar to Indiana Jones. Yes. Especially in that scene when he's trying to get the dragon's egg. That's like just straight out of Last Crusade. Justin Whalen's performance, which is honestly, I think, the standout of the whole movie. Agreed. I love him so much in this. But he's obviously being told to channel some Harrison Ford vibes, you know? Mm -hmm. He's kind of like halfway between Indiana Jones and Han Solo. Right, yeah. I mean, the story overall is kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark. We got to get there before before they do, and we're smarter, so we're going to get it. Then the score is very much like Star Wars. Like, even the main themes actually sound very, very similar to Star Wars. The yeah, the overall... Not a terrible score, too. No, it's not bad. It's, it, just, it, it just sounds very similar. By the end, I was kind of feeling it, you know? Mm -hmm. I almost got a little teary-eyed at the end when the theme <laughs> came back in. And it was done by... Uh, Justin Burnett is his name, mm -hmm. who was a Hans Zimmer guy back in the 90s. Oh, okay. And hasn't really done much since, I gotta say. He did another Courtney Solomon movie in 2013. Do you remember what movie it was? I looked up his it filmography. Getaway. Getaway, okay. With Ethan Hawke and Selena Gomez. Oh, we should do a Courtney Solomon series, just do all of his movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, it's an, he honestly has a pretty interesting career because he after this, he starts a horror production company mm -hmm. directs a couple horror movies he eventually does getaway and he's produced like something like 80 movies mm -hmm. yeah well he, at least so he like, got he's to, an interesting dude he got to do what he wanted to do eventually is produce a lot of shit so right. <laughs> good for <laughs> and him. not be forced to direct them with an old script yeah the overall design of the movie is you know channeling lord of the rings in some way and obviously the dwarf character whose name completely escapes me just looks oh my god pretty much exactly like you know, Diet Gimli and uh, Elwood? Elwood. Elwood. That's his name. That's right. Was that it? There was there was something else, I think. But there's there, there's a lot of clear influences from other famous like properties. Uh, and I it, it was fun to see, like, like I said, that scene where he tries to get the dragon's egg and then he's dodging the axes and has to step on the right panels. Oh I was like, gosh. this is just Last Crusade, but I love it. Fuck. OK, you just said a lot that I want to talk about. So, like, first of all, I think this movie looks really good mostly with the practical stuff not the cgi stuff mm -hmm. but like when they're just going into taverns or profian is in his lair these practical sets look really good and they're always filled with extras who were clearly told by courtney solomon like okay you two in this tavern are going to be like having a little whispered conversation in the corner about some quest that you're going to go on. You're going to be standing up here. You're the bard. You're singing. You three are going to be over here in a little circle talking about how you want to beat up that guy at the other table. All the extras are always in great costumes. There's some great practical orcs and dragonborns and stuff. It all just looks so good and it feels so alive. Yeah, and it definitely has that... Like I said, that early 2000s charm of they had to do a lot in camera, like as much in camera as they possibly could. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that's kind of why the sets look as filled as they do. And yeah, the extras are kind of are living it up. And yeah, the production design looks great. You know, the like the bar scene or the scene where they're going through the Thieves Guild of the um, just outside yeah. and all the all the store, like all the shops and tents set up mm -hmm. and Ed Snails is just like taking stuff. Uh, it, it's very, it's very, you know, well thought out in terms of 
just yeah that aspect the look of it now the other side of that another box that i uh want in a in a movie such as this is checked off which is bad cgi this movie's laden with it and i love it (laughs) well okay yes the cgi is all pretty fucking horrific but here's the thing, okay? Because normally in a movie like this, in a best of the worst, when you have bad CGI, it's usually accompanied by bad filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, at the very end of the movie, there's a giant dragon battle in the sky. And right. there's like hundreds of red dragons, hundreds of gold dragons. They're all terribly rendered CGI creatures. But in any other movie like this, you would just have like a wide shot of the dragons just slowly going towards each other and then hitting each other. Right. This movie mm-hmm. doesn't do that. Like the direction of the CGI sequences, I think are so thrilling. Like the camera movements and the direction is so exciting that I think it almost makes up for the fact that the CGI sucks. Like when the dragons are fighting in the air, you have the camera like flying around them in these wide arcing circles and like pushing in and pulling out and going from one dragon to another. Like it's interesting stuff that I think is honestly a bit ahead of its time like it the the actual camera movement and stuff is more akin to something out of like 2009 star trek than it is from a 2000 fantasy movie it definitely they put in a lot more effort to make it look as good as they could and obviously with the the cgi of the 2000s has some examples of where it wasn't as up to par as we have now of course i i recognize that but yeah in another movie they would have just made it a still shot like it looks a little bit better than some stuff out of the prequels at times because of like they like you said when yeah they're, when, i agree when when they're moving the cameras and as opposed mm-hmm. to just making it like there's like there's that shot in the phantom menace where the camera's just still and the army is going up against uh like right. a, a, in like the open field and it's like this looks yeah. terrible but like this yeah. they just they try and put at least some energy around it like when the one dragon gets hit with the arrow and you're just like and they follow the arrow like flying through the air you're like oh cool all right yeah and then <laughs> that dragon like falls down onto like a spire building right mm-hmm. and gets impaled on that it's yeah interesting stuff and it's like with the filmmaking aspect being that good i'm kind of just like all right this is how dragons look in this world like i'm i pretty much completely forgot about the fact that these were horrific looking cgi dragons by like the second minute of that dragon fight at the end mm-hmm. and i was just and- i was just into it <laughs> And it's so like it, it's so over the top. Like everyone else is also just giving like so much energy and right just, that it it makes it feels complete in some way. Like it's not like if every actor in this movie was kind of half-assing it and just kind of meh, here I am. But everyone is like relishing it, like really milking it. One more thing about that final battle is I think. Courtney Solomon also does a very smart thing, which is, which makes the dragon battle look really realistic, which is every time they're on that tower where Profian is and they're fighting on that tower, they have like the backgrounds where the dragons are just whizzing by. That stuff looks really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that actually kind of got a little chuckle out of me because it was like, uh, it, it made me think like when they go back, they like jump through the portal and they leave that area and then they're like, oh, all is saved. And then I was just thinking like there were still like probably like 80 dragons just flying around like that city. Like I'm sure there were people that like they they're like, uh, we're still here. Like we need some help. Like, <laughs> How do we get home? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, we should go down 
the list of performances in this movie because I think it's like it's a very black and white list. Like the people mm-hmm. who are into it are very into it, and the people who are not into it are dirty little stinkers. Yeah, and there's yeah there's there's a there's quite a few. Um, so we got um Justin Whalen right is the as Ridley Freeborn. As Ridley Freeborn. I made a note that he's basically just like Joseph Gordon-Levitt light just because of the way that he looks. Oh, yeah. But, um, Not no, a bad he, comparison. Him and uh, Marlon Wayans are actually like very clearly having yeah. a great time. Yeah. And I usually don't like the Wayans like at all in most mm-hmm. movies they're in. But they're just like, their chemistry is so good. And... Something I think the cast of this movie does really well, just in like the the characters from the script themselves and then the actors portraying them, is they just really do a great job of representing a typical Dungeons and Dragons party. Uh-huh. Like Justin Whalen and Marlon Wayans are just so clearly the two best friends in the group that are like, we're gonna be two thieving rogues, and our whole thing is we like to steal. Mm-hmm. And it's and they do that so well. The chemistry is there. They're funny together when they get like honest and uh, deep with each other. Like you really feel that. I think they're both pretty stellar. And I've if of the Marlins or of the of the Wayne brothers, I, I've enjoyed Marlon Wayne's probably the, the most. He screams a little too much For in sure. this movie, um, but he is very charismatic. And you're like, I want to like just be friends with you because you are yeah. a very genuinely nice person. Uh, and he snails, dude. Yeah, snails like <laughs> Ridley snails and uh, what's the what's the mage's name? What's her name? The mage is Marina. I Marina, think. that's right. Okay, who I think is one of the stinkier performances. Yeah, she's not. I, and also, I mean, I don't really think her. I think part of it has to do with I don't really think her character is given all that much, other than being okay. She starts off with this wizard who is she's like just in a in a library, and she's like. I want. I, I feel like there's something more to life than just shelving <laughs> books. And then she gets thrown into this conspiracy, and then becomes the damsel in distress, basically for right. for part of it. Well, what's so bizarre to me is that at the beginning of the movie, she's shown to be like a a mage that can handle herself, right? right? Like she's casting portals, she's shooting spells, and then immediately she's just like can't do anything anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, she brought them along for the adventure and some just by accident. Right. Yeah. So And then somehow the role is reversed to where the thieves are now the lead character for no reason and she just can't do anything. Don't like that. Yeah. Well, this is another box that is checked in my uh in my <laughs> checklist, which is over the top acting and the standouts, clear standouts. Not not so much of the of those three. Like they're not over the top, like they're they're they they serve their purpose for the most I part. I think they yeah they definitely find the sweet spot of being campy but in a very genuine way. Yeah, I think a lot of Marina's cheesy performance comes from the lines that she has to deliver. There's a part where yeah. she's in the when she's being tortured that she says like "You're a disgrace to Izmir conspir- conspiring against the Empress." <laughs> I was like, that's a line that someone had to say. Like she had to say that. Like, <laughs> and I think that even if she isn't the best actress in the in the group at least she is giving it like some goofy energy instead of doing a thora birch which is she's, pretending like you're not even on set she she is awful in this movie she is she's so, so bad. bad 
And Thor Birch was one year before this. She did American Beauty, which American was like Beauty, yeah. one of the biggest move, like dramas of the nineties. And then goes into do. She wears this fucking drapey gold <laughs> face. She looks like a giraffe, like at the end of this movie with this. Yeah. Girl. <laughs> When and she comes in in like her badass fight costume and mm-hmm. it's the stupidest looking, it's just like <laughs> a gold chainmail headdress that mm-hmm. drapes down her whole body. It's like the stupidest looking thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And she is not helping that at all. Mm-mm. Nope. She is so bland. Like the, <laughs> she's like kind of the more exposition dump because in the beginning she's talking to the old dude and he's and she's just like, I want the realms to be joined. I want uh, commoners and mages to live together and be free. And it's like, ah, I understand now. <laughs> yeah, well, she's just doing like Natalie Portman is. Padme yes, and, that's what I was. Yeah. That, I was thinking exactly that. I was like, this movie would have been like, just get Natalie Portman like again. Like, I don't care what they would have had to do. It would have been like so much, at least so much more interesting. <laughs> she is so bad in this movie. It's just, and it clearly like doesn't want to be there like very much. Like right. she, like there's a shot, like especially in the final battle, there's a shot where she is on on a dragon flying to the tower yeah. and two dragons <laughs> are coming. Shot, that's, Josh, that's the exact <laughs> thought I was thinking of when I said she looked stupid in her war costume. <laughs> but sh- two dragons are coming at her from front and behind and they're about to collide with her and she just gives this like, oh no, <laughs> kind of look. Like, bitch, you're about to die. Like, react. Give us something to work with. <laughs> and I think it's very interesting to compare her performance to Jeremy Irons because these are two actors that are very clearly being given lines of dialogue that mean absolutely nothing to them. Yeah. But the difference is <laughs> Jeremy Iron is smart enough to know that if he puts enough pepper on this piece of dry chicken, that it's going to be good. He overloads and Birch with just, pepper. <laughs> he just dumps pepper on. Thora Birch has never heard of seasoning in her life. In fact, I believe there's an interview with her where she says... Someone's like, hey, have you ever did you ever play D and D before you did that movie? And she's like, I honestly didn't even know what D and D was, except for that weird people play it. <laughs> oh. Oh, well. Yeah, that that explains a lot. Yeah, Je- but Jeremy <laughs> Iron, Jeremy Irons, man, I I kind of felt bad for him at first. Like I was like, oh, it's I feel kind of sad that he's in this movie because he had just won an Oscar and was like he's one of the best actors of his generation. But he is like the perfect slimy mm-hmm. like villain that you don't feel is actually menacing, but you know that he's like trying to portray that by just doing like this evil snarl and like ah yeah. throughout the entire movie. Well, okay, so by by the director's account, apparently Jeremy Irons is doing exactly what he was asking him to do. Jeremy Irons had an amazing time filming this movie. Like he's been quoted saying that he had a lot of fun. And have you, did you, I I was doing some research and one of the things that kept coming up was that Jeremy Irons only took this role because he had just recently bought a castle and Mm -hmm. needed money to renovate it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I did see, I did see that, but that's the sign of, a good a good artist is that he was even though clearly you know didn't really have any attachment to the material in any way still gave it you know gave it some energy yeah. and had fun He's with like it. I'm, and that's the biggest thing about this movie is just there's it's just creative energy there's obviously a tone that was set 
on set by the director of just, we are going to have fun making this fun movie about a fun game. Mm -hmm. And Jeremy, like, this is something uh, that I also really appreciated from him in uh, the Watchmen show that just came out on HBO. Uh Because he's playing this role where it's, it's one of the most, like, Looney Tunes, Wile E. Coyotes thing I've seen on modern TV. And he probably has absolutely no idea what the fuck he's talking about or what he's saying. But he just, he's like, I'm here, I'm going to do it, I'm going to commit, and I'm going to be this role. I'm going to be Mage Profian, and I'm going to summon the goddamn dragons. (laughs) His role in this movie reminded me a lot of Christopher Lloyd in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Especially like after yeah. his after his transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. It's so it's such a Looney Tunes character. And there's stakes in this movie, but like there's not really stakes in the movie. Like in that, I mean they're clearly like, okay, the real stakes are the threat of the universe and the <laughs> the overthrow of the government. But it doesn't feel like we all know that it's going to turn out fine in the end, but you still are like, oh my God, this villain is just like, he is so into it and just so like over the top and giving just a hundred percent that you're like, all right, let's, let's see where this goes. And that goes the same for his, um, for his compatriot guy, whatever the hell his name is. Uh, Oh my God. Damodar. Damodar. Yeah. Mr. Oh my, Mr. Uh, just ate a little bag of fun dip and forgot to wipe his lips off. Yeah. Literally has (laughs) fuck. No, it's like the, uh, coral number 72 semi-gloss lipstick that from SpongeBob that he kissed the dollar with. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Damodar played by, Bruce Payne is probably my favorite character in this movie uh-huh. because he starts out, he's just this big beefy guy in this big bulky armor and for seemingly no reason whatsoever, he's just got bright blue lips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and instantly I'm like, all right, I'm on this guy's side. Don't care what he's after. Don't care how evil he is. I'm with him. And the performance is so bizarre. Like it's so quiet. Like he's almost whispering everything. He's whispering and he's putting so much space between every single word. Like, yeah. <laughs> but he's also just such a threatening looking guy, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like this bizarre thing. It's like they knew that, and, and Jeremy Irons disappears for like half of this movie. He's in the first act and then is nowhere to be seen for like 40 minutes. And Damodar takes over as being kind of the main villain because he gets this, you know, parasite earworm thing in his head and now he's like I right, can yeah. get information from people. <laughs> well you see that is great because he upgrades from just having blue lips to having blue lips and also having bright red ears. Yes he's got his veins are popping out of his like just red all over his like <laughs> that's what leads to one of my favorite lines later at the end when he's like you said you'd fixed me and then Jerry yeah. <laughs> turns back to and he goes what about my head <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then gets zapped and oh. then everything like goes completely back to normal and it's like oh you got a nice tan you're good like <laughs> yeah um, to go back to what you said about like Jeremy Irons disappearing, that's also like a big 80s trope, which this movie is mm-hmm. obviously influenced by a lot of 80s movies, is having your big bad guy and then having the secondary bad guy who is like there for most of the movie. And like in turn of that being like a popular trope in pop culture, that's also a popular trope in Dungeons and Dragons and most campaigns. Like even in Dingles and Donuts, you know, we had 
like the main big bad guy was this kobold named Uplo Sikba. And then he had all of his little minions under him that you guys were dealing with for most of the campaign. Right. So like, that's just, and that's just another way that I think this movie like beautifully captures the typical like party villain NPC structure. I like, I like also that they, and I mean like this is something that has been found in a lot of adventure movies, but it, it works here because of how a D and D campaign works is they have several different objectives going on in, in a scene. So like in one scene when Ridley and what's her name? I completely forgot. Or Marina, when, when they get sucked into basically like the Marauders map from Harry Potter and then the dwarf guy yes. and, uh, and snails are just left in the tavern. Snails goes to talk to the elf, and you could, I could totally see someone in, in like a campaign just being like, "Well, I got nothing else to do. Ooh, a pretty girl. I'm gonna go flirt with her." Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> yes, that is, that is it. Like, that's the scene that literally locks everything in for me because mm-hmm. we don't see what the heck those two do when they jump into that map, and then we just have the two other characters having to hang out in a bar for like. A couple minutes, yeah. Which is, you're right. It's so D and D. I'm gonna go flirt with the. Uh, where's the hottest elf? I'm gonna go flirt with her. You know, uh-huh. yeah. And how that continue that that comes up again, like a couple different times when they're when they're scoping out the castle that they're going to. But obviously, they don't. It, it doesn't go anywhere because Marlon Wayans fucking dies at the end of the second Jesus act of Christ. this movie, which I didn't see coming. I'll, I'll give the movie this. I did not see that coming. So. Richard O'Brien is in this movie. Wait, who who is he? He's the d- guy who runs the maze. Oh, duh! That, oh, that's He's who the I okay. thief guy. Right. I I was looking at him. I was like, I oh, I recognize you have. He has such a distinct mouth. I was uh-huh. like, I I totally know who you are, but I like I can't place it. Yes, uh, he is just given the biggest heat check in this movie. He's in one scene, and he yeah. is just. Even more giving more than riffraff. Like it's insane. Right. He's the and what a perfect fucking vibe. Like he has mm-hmm. such a vibe as an actor, and he just meshes into this world so well. And in this in this DVD talk interview I read, there's a really fun anecdote that Courtney Solomon said about casting Richard O'Brien because the interviewer was like, Yo, you got Richard O'Brien in this. Like, how the heck did that even happen? Mm-hmm. And so Courtney Solomon had just gotten an audition tape from him, like simple as that. And he said, this is a quote, his audition was hilarious because he just sort of talked to the camera. He said, (laughs) hello, Los Angeles. This is Richard O'Brien. And I read this part and I just want to say that I'm perfect to play this part. So your search is over. I don't need to read because you know who I am and you know what I can do. So just come to your senses, give me a call and let's get this on with. And that was his audition tape. <laughs> I love this man. And he he's ba- in this movie. He's basically what Riff Raff was at the end of Rocky Horror Picture Show when it's revealed that they're actually aliens. <laughs> yeah. That's who he is in this movie. And like, <laughs> oh, my God, when he actually like goes through the maze and, um, you know, comes back with the egg and everyone's applauding him. And he's like, I've been looking for the man who will be able to do this. And here you are. <laughs> the man (laughs) oh my god and just i mean just such a wonderful positive energy that especially because he was part of one of the biggest you know cult classic movies of all time Mm -hmm. that and is just a symbol of underground artistry as like as much as like john waters is but also the idea that he is a very nice guy and uh 
appeals to so many people just because of he does so many things with his art that no one else was doing at the time that you, you well, kind of have to have him in Dungeons and Dragons. That's another thing that Courtney Solomon said in this interview was just that Rocky Horror Picture Show came out at about the same time that Dungeons and Dragons first came out. And he's just like such a part of that cult underground thing that Dungeons and Dragons also is. So he was like, it was absolutely no question to me. Like when I first, when I saw that he had an audition tape, I almost said yes immediately. Yeah. And, and what a, what a great choice. Uh, Just even the fact that again, he's just in, he's just in one scene, like pretty much just that one, Mm -hmm. that one section. He doesn't need to be in any more. He doesn't need to be a full on main character. It was like just right. So the amount of time, the amount of screen time, uh, that he had. Um, and he even helps them at the end by like having his guys jump on, jump on the guards. And you're like, yes, he's actually like a yeah. good guy. <laughs> I love that. It just, it's bringing back all of these classic things from D and D too, like the thieves guild, Howard. Mm-hmm. I, I love like the little lines, like we're official members of the Izmir chapter of the thieves guild or whatever. And both of them know Richard O'Brien's character as being like this big, epic like ultimate thief guy yeah when when they said the thieves guild i was so it, it, i was like that that meme of rick dalton i was like oh i know that like <laughs> yeah <laughs> this movie would be so much worse if everyone was just half-assing and it's just like oh no we fell into this pit of you know sinking sand that's in this guy's office what are we gonna do like yeah. everyone Which acts- I, that was a really cool thing i thought just creatively was the carpet that is actually sand uh-huh you'd see that i thought in that a looked really good i thought it was really fun i thought it was a good classy D trap i thought it was dumb that damador pulled him out of the sand uh, as opposed to just keeping him in there and killing him that way but you gotta have the you gotta have the fight so um right well and- what you're saying about all these performances i mean i guess what we've both been saying this whole time the thing to remember about it too is that it's completely intentional right right Solomon went into this movie. He wanted to make a kids' film, and like something he he's talked about in a couple of different interviews is how, when making this, he kind of had this question of okay, half the people who play D and D are going to want this big dark epic fantasy with like this brooding character at the center, but then the other half of the people are people who just play it to, to have fun and like whack out with their friends, you know, and. So it was a very intentional choice that he made to go for the people who are just like having a fun and wild time playing their D&D campaign. And he did that because it's how he said he played D&D. Uh, he, so he wanted to make the movie for kids. Um, it also helped him get it funded because like it's a wider audience that it's appealing to. So all these wacky performances, it's very intentional, which mm-hmm. it, it's good directing from him, especially as a first time director. And again, the the spirit of it all is it's it's trying to be self aware and knows what it's what it's going for because of its audience, but also it's it it has positivity behind it. Yeah, well, I, I think it's a very similar thing to Fantastic Four. You know, uh-huh. like Fantastic Four is a goofy comic book, and when you try to make it into a movie that's dark and brooding and horrific, like they did for Fan Four Stick. It just isn't going to work. And I think it would be the same case with D&D. Because I think, and uh, Courtney Solomon agrees in the interviews, it's like most most people that play this 
are just playing it to have fun. And your movie like really needs to reflect this. It should have goofy, cartoony energy and not it shouldn't be trying to be Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it, it, that, that's a great comparison to to Fantastic Four because you know that movie doesn't work on pretty much every level. And at least the ones that came before it were trying to go for a little bit of a lighter a lighter tone before we mm-hmm. got the the age of just the dark and gritty superhero movies. This one very much knew that it had to be lighter in tone. And that's kind of why I think that it works to its advantage that yes, there's stakes of the universe in the campaign, but we know as audience members that everything's probably going to turn out. Okay. Um, because right. of be, you know, just all things considered in the audience that you're going for, but the adventure itself and how they get there is, like I said, I was like, I was locked in when he's trying to get that dragon's egg and going through in that maze. That was so fun. A great practical set. Yes, like all like, and you could tell that it was like on like a, a set and like a soundstage. Well, that whole sequence, real quick, is a parody of a British TV show that Richard O'Brien hosted. Oh, really? Richard O'Brien apparently had this game show on British television where people would have to make their way through a maze uh, collecting crystals. And then like the more crystals they had at the end, the more assistance they would get on the big like final obstacle. And so his character in this is a parody of his hosting style. And then the actual maze is also a parody of the, the maze show itself. Huh? Well, I, I had no idea. I want to go. I want to go look for that show now. Me too. <laughs> sounds sounds dope. Um, but it's also like when you see, like when he goes in on like the arrow traps, like you can see that there was an obvious intentionality there to be like, okay, his character right now, the DM would be telling him to roll a perception check to try to figure out which tiles he can stand on. And when he goes in, and there's like the the axes swinging back and forth, you can see there's like that intentionality there. It's like, okay, now his char- his character's player is being like, all right, I've got these things swinging. I'm going to try to jump on him. Cool. Roll a dexterity check. Got a 17. You jump on him, get to the other side. Fine. Like you can see all the mechanics at play there on set. So the guy who played um, the dwarf in a comic con interview referred to Solomon as their dungeon master who is mm-hmm. keeping them all in line with the rules whenever they were doing an action scene or even just a conversation scene like he would constantly be like okay we're in combat so like it's not your turn yet so you have to just kind of like dodge okay now it's your turn and you're a rogue so rogues would be attacking like this like these are your options to attack and this is how you would do it when people are casting spells like he'd be aware of like okay this is a spell that needs components so we need to make sure that she's using the components or this is a spell that takes X amount of time to cast so we need to make sure that it's taking x amount of time to cast which i like i noticed that while watching mm-hmm. it. i was like these are like they're in a turn order they all have their classes like the dwarf is a fighter the two thieves are rogues and then we have the mage and they're all attacking using their class traits and it was it was very fun to see yeah I de- like especially in that whole tavern sequence you you can see that it's like oh when they're trying to break out oh this is a this is actually a skill challenge and yeah. you know when yeah, when yeah, yeah. the one when ridley jumps on uh, the one guy okay he's he's just trying to attack him but um, Marina's crawling to get the to get the scroll, and then mm-hmm. um, you know she gets taken out, and they have to find their way out through this crowded area. Like you could totally see that as like, okay, you're not. This isn't a combat challenge. This is they're clearly trying to use their skills in a in a skill challenge, right. and that was fun to see. I mean, that's like the that's like such a classic trope of D and D in general. It's just the big tavern fight. Yeah, you know, like you you can't not have that in this movie. Yeah. 
And he's just clearly someone who loves the game. And he's clearly someone who has played a lot of campaigns and he knows exactly what he needs to incorporate into there to get the feeling. Right. And I think that's kind of one of the the strengths of this movie just is like as you know what it represents what it can say about us as moviegoers is that if you have played Dungeons and Dragons and are interested in the game and know about the game this movie you will have fun with it you can have a good time i think this is definitely more geared towards D&D players than the general audience i think people who aren't more in the know it may be a little bit harder to follow in terms of who a mage is and you know what exactly is going on with the politics of the movie necessarily well i think that this movie really has a chance to become a cult classic oh absolutely forward because i mean it has all of these little things for people who know dungeons and dragons but I mean, like I said, the world is completely new. Most of the like monsters and items and stuff are completely new. It doesn't stop and say, okay, now we're in initiative order. Now you're a fighter, so you have to do this. Like It just kind of does those things almost as an Easter egg for people who, who have played the game. But I, th- I think to somebody who hasn't played the game, the, mo- the movie is actually relatively accessible since most of it is original content. Yeah, and... It's definitely. It was definitely a good choice that they weren't so meta about it that it's like, oh no, now we got to be in this initiative order and like, like cut around to every single person as they make their decisions in like slower motion or something, and then they're like, huh, I could do this. Like the right, a, a poor way to do it would be like if like you see the outcomes of a couple different things, so they're like everything slows down around them, and they're thinking like, okay, I could go to this person and try and fight them, and that could lead to this yeah. outcome. Then they're like, oh no, but I could also try and sneak around and deceive this other person <laughs> to let me in here, but that could also lead to this. Hmm, what do I do? Like that would be so fucking boring, and like right. just like that—that's just the worst way that they could have done it. But just the well, it, it seems as though it seems as though they are just filming a fight scene or like a tavern fight but we since we played the game you actually kind of are in the know and realize oh they're doing a challenge I think the strongest parts of this movie are the action scenes like I am genuinely thrilled whenever there is a fight going on or a chase going on or anything of that sort like I think the way this movie does magic like at the beginning when the wizard is getting killed and Marina is like trying to escape with the two guys like I love the the wizard hucking her the scroll with magic, her catching it, throwing the portal, like looping the two Ridley and snails up with her hold spell. Like all of that stuff is done so well and is paced really well. And it's like, it's super fun to watch. But also on your point of, because I've always had a very strong opinion of how Dungeons and Dragons should be adapted. If you would like to go into that. Sure, go for it. We've talked about this to death so far, but the thing about Dungeons and Dragons is that it's thousands of stories. You know, like it's not just one story. It's not just one setting. It's all of these people making all of their own campaigns. Like everyone's writing thousands of stories daily, different fantasy stories, different settings, all that junk. So when adapting Dungeons and Dragons, I think the easiest thing to do, and what I feel like they're definitely going to do with the 2021 reboot of the series is do some stupid tongue-in-cheek like lego movie type thing where it's like a couple kids get zapped into the forgotten realms and then there is junk like time slows down and they're like i want to try to stab the orc and but some voice is like oh but you can't stab the orc because you are a wizard you know junk like that Mm -hmm. 
I feel like it's going to be this tongue-in-cheek throwback adventure, like in a style of an 80s movie. And I don't think Dungeons and Dragons should be that. I, I think Dungeons and Dragons should be a celebration of original fantasy stories, which is why I love this movie so much because the fantasy genre in film, it's gone downhill lately. Like when you think about fantasy, you've got Game of Thrones, the TV series, right? Mm-hmm. You've got Lord of the Rings back in 2000. And between those two things, like what sort of original fantasy story has been told on film in the past 20 years Uh, yeah after yeah after harry potter ended it seemed that and the hobbit movies didn't really make the mark as well it seemed like game of thrones kind of took over that role and it was moved to television so a lot of fantasy series like his dark materials is out now and that's getting you know a lot of traction with its first season but for the most part yeah on film the fantasy genre has been more on the downward slope and i mean the thing is is that every single fantasy thing that we have gotten that has been a hit has been an adaptation, Mm -hmm. which is a shame because the whole spirit of fantasy is creating these original magical worlds, which is why I think if they ever do a D&D live-action TV series or when they do a reboot live-action Dungeons & Dragons, I think it has to be more of an anthology thing where you just let creative minds come in and say, this is my original fantasy world that I have been working with my entire life. And they say, okay, here's your big budget, make your movie. And we're going to put Dungeons and Dragons on it. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. I think Dungeons and Dragons is a huge opportunity for the film industry to just tell original fantasy stories. And this movie does that. And it's what I love so much about this movie. That is a good idea that if they did it for like television or something, do each season as American a, horror story style. Yes. But like same cast, original fantasy stories every season. That's my pitch for a Dungeons and Dragons live action. Have edition. each se- each season be directed by one person, a different person yeah. each time. Yeah, that'd be yeah. cool. Um I was also Dungeons and Dragons is Dungeon Masters showing you their original world. Like that is what Dungeon and dragons is to me and that's what i want it to be on screen absolutely and also it, it, it'd be cool if like one storyline and this is just specific but like it, they could do it like uh going back and forth between you see the characters that people are playing in the campaign and then back to like real life like oh this is actually like kids finding influences in their everyday life mm-hmm. um and, and turn it turn them into characters and obstacles in the campaign itself. Like, like how like the Lego movie turns at the end that it's actually like, not just about, you know, the Legos and the, and the craggle, but it's like this father and son story. Like having, can I tell you something, Josh? Yes. That has been done already. And it's been done excellently Mm -hmm. on stage. There is this amazing play called, uh, I believe it's called she kills monsters. Oh, right. Yes. I've heard about this. And, Mm -hmm. My friend, Noah McMullen, who is also on Dingles and Donuts, was in a production of that at Fredonia University. And it is, it's a wonderful play. Like it's, um, it's about this high school teacher whose little sister dies. And in order to get closer to her little sister, she plays this homebrew campaign that her little sister had made. And she like asks one of her students to run the campaign for her. And so she's like learning about her sister and like the struggles her sister went through in high school through this campaign setting. Oh, interesting. Okay. Which I think is another amazing adaptation. Like if you're going to do 
and like the the play switches between real life and then it'll switch into the fantasy world where all the characters are playing their own D and D characters, and that is probably the only context in which I would like to see characters in real life and then they go into the game. Like I don't want to get a uh oh a magical beam of light zapped us into the game. Like even if it's tongue in cheek, even if it's oh, yeah, all no, super intentional, I just I'm I'm kind of sick of that. <laughs> Yeah, we already did it like so much with Jumanji. Like, right? It's like you did it again, and it it worked because it was tongue in cheek. But we don't need to keep doing it over and over again just because it works. Like, come up with something original. Right. That actually, the now that you say that, that actually reminds me of this movie that we watched in film analysis the first semester. It's called The Fall, directed by Tarsum Singh, um, with um, with Lee Pace from the Hobbit films, uh, and it is it's about Love this me some pace. Mm-hmm. Um, it, he sets the pace. <laughs> it takes place in this um, hospital in LA in the in the twenties, and he befriends a a little girl and tells her stories about his past and where he comes from and he has like a broken leg. So it tells like about how he broke his leg, but we see it in this fantasy world of marauders and cowboys and, and and it's interesting. So I guess like that's the, the already like film version of it that isn't necessarily related to D and D, but like has that, I watch that has that same idea. It's pretty good. It's an interesting movie, but yeah, I think an anthology series of D and D would be really cool because you can't boil it all down to just one movie. I feel like that doesn't like as, as good as fun as this movie is. Um, there's so much more that you can capture through several seasons of a show. So talking about things that I think are translated well from actual D and D campaigns, I think the way that all the characters are introduced is done really well. For example, them just kind of like tripping into a trash pile where the dwarf lives. Oh yeah, is such a like the player gave the dm like absolutely no connections to the other characters and so the dm just had to be like you trip into his dwarf home (laughs) like i thought that was really funny and i really liked that and that the whole dwarf character in general i think is a a great encapsulation of the one person in the party who plays the chaotic neutral character Mm -hmm. oh and like the elf being introduced in the bar with the flirting but we already talked about that and also at the end uh when like towards the the, at the at the end of the second act when and Marina and uh, and Ridley are talking after Snails uh, has been killed, he's obviously very distraught about it. Oh and- fuck! Yeah, wait. Let's talk about Snails being killed real quick. I said we we're going to come back to that later. We haven't yet. I was not expecting that. Me neither. <laughs> good, decent twist. Good surprise. I was, and also, I mean, like, good on the yeah, good on the movie for for doing that. Like, that's a bold choice. And also, like, I was expecting him to come back at some point. Like just like to be resurrected at the end with yeah. the dragon's egg, but no, they just like it just kind of opens and goes out into the onto the air. But I was like, oh wow, like actually, yeah, good job, movie. I was you got me. I was definitely not seeing Marlon Wayans being killed. I and again, classic D and D trope of killing off like the most likable character to uh-huh. get a reaction from the players. Like <laughs> it all fits in so well. It's a bold choice. Apparently, there's an alternate ending where. It is just like Snails is dead and Ridley is just like sat at his grave and then walks away. But I I actually kind of love the 
how they leave it up at the end. Like, oh, we're going to do, there's like more campaign ahead of us. Like this was only the first story arc in this campaign. And these characters are about to go finish the campaign off screen. I, I kind of like that. Yeah, there's more there's more adventure to be had. Because like a D&D campaign never really ends, at least not for a very long time. So right. it would have been a bit dishonest to have this movie end super conclusively with just we walk away from the grave sad. Like I like the idea that they're going to go on a big uh, Star Trek, the search for Spock adventure style thing after this. Yeah, and I mean, you could tell that they... It, <laughs> I don't even know if they had in mind that they were going to do a sequel. Probably not. Like, I don't, oh, they did. Oh, you think so? Oh. It was. I know so. They said it at the Comic Con interview. Uh, it was there was a planned trilogy, and in the interviews, they seemed very confident that they were going to get to do them. There is a trilogy, though. They made oh, wait, two yes, more. There, there is. I saw that on IMDb. Yeah. And I was like, are these like just directed video sequels that they are? Yeah. Random people made like pretty much. Except I think that the only thing connecting them to the first movie is Bruce Payne as Damador comes back in the second one. Dope. For the but I guess they all they both suck pretty hard. Wrath of the Dragon God and the Book of Vile Darkness. Yeah, from all from like everything I've read, it seems like those movies are kind of like, well, let me pull out my bag of holding (laughs) and my rod of lightning (laughs) and let's fight this beholder. Uh, oh my god whereas this movie is just like snails has a bag of holding doesn't say anything about it and just keeps shoving things in it you know? right yeah like, good bit that you only really catch if you are a fan of the game yeah absolutely um but back to that scene i was talking about at the end of the second act with after ridley is you know clearly very traumatized there's a couple things happened in that scene that i find very hilarious ridley's like crying like over in the corner like just by himself <laughs> oh that stuff looks really good too i really oh, yeah, the like tree. the look of the elf city yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah it does look cool it's like the the tree of life in in mm-hmm. disney and mixed with the endor stuff from from star wars also tom baker <laughs> One of the original doctors from Doctor Who making a cameo appearance as the big old legacy elf guy that heals oh, yeah. Ridley. He he says something interesting, like he was like, All creatures are <laughs> yeah. all creatures are connected and balanced by magic. And then I was like, but only if your midichlorian scale is like up to like a certain <laughs> Like number. Well, yeah, because this movie does. I mean, I think it fares away from exposition like a fair amount, considering the type of movie it is. And then just out of nowhere, this dude is just like, "Dragons have been the source of magic in all the land." And when, and then Ridley's like, "Well, what happens when a dragon dies? Then the magic dies with them." And it's just this long expository thing mm-hmm. with a weird cameo from Tom Baker. Yeah, and I think that. I I honestly think there was more exposition. I think there was a lot, but they do it in some interesting ways. Like, especially at the end when he goes to the cave and talks, he's he's talking to a fucking skeleton, like on like a hook and is telling him about the rod. And I was like, all right, this is at least a lot more interesting than if a voice in the room said it to him. Like, that's okay. Yeah, I guess that's the thing is it's just like when there is exposition, it's weaved into the story a bit better than it could be. But the Tom Baker elf king is yeah. just like a bit like, here's the information you must know about the dragons. Yes. Um, 
also, so what I was saying earlier is <laughs> Ridley. Right, let's get to what you've been trying to say for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> Ridley is so sad. His best friend was just killed. And Marina comes up behind him and goes, he died for a good cause. Probably the worst thing that she could have said to him in that moment. And it's just yeah. like, he's like, a good cause? And then he just goes, mage! And like, just yells that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Yeah, like I, is that happens. just like is that a hate crime? Like I, like, <laughs> well, I feel like we're gonna talk about that more in the analysis, but <laughs> just yeah, but we might as well. Also, the kiss. There's nothing pretty bad. It's pretty bad, but it's everything I wanted. There's no reason for it. It is not set up in any way other than it's just it's a man character and a woman character, <laughs> and they like are in the same room together with no uh-huh. one else around them. But I. And it's awful. It's it's one of the worst kisses I've seen in a movie. But god damn, if it's not what I was what I wanted from the get-go. I was like, they're gonna have a scene where they're like one guy's he's gonna be like really upset about something. They're gonna have some alone time and then they're gonna connect in like 10 seconds uh-huh. and then they're gonna make out and be okay. Okay, two things. First is a very funny thing I realized while looking at the Wikipedia page for this movie, which is the sentence for that scene is, after a brief argument in which Marina convinces Ridley that snails didn't die in vain, the two forgive each other and become love interests. And the love interest is hyperlinked, but it's not hyperlinked to the love interest page. It's hyperlinked to the stock character page, where it says, <laughs> a stock character is a stereotypical fictional person or type of person in a work of art, such as a novel player film who audience recognize from frequent occurrences in particular literary traditions. So even the Wikipedia page is like, yeah, this, this girl has no character. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Second thing, while it's not the best example of this, I think Snails and Ridley's uh, arcs to becoming heroes is done relatively well. Because mm-hmm. like even up to that scene in the elf forest, like he's still like, we're not here because we think that we have some great purpose to save the world, right? We're basically just tagging along. And then Marina does actually convince him like, no, you guys, like, you are good people. He died because he was a good person. You're here because you're a good person. And, like, we have to save the day. Like, it's up to us. And I like that evolution of his character. Yeah. And you see it, like, right. I mean, the last act that Snails does is a heroic one and gives them the, tosses mm-hmm. them, just tosses them the scroll and doesn't give, and doesn't that, give anything. It hurts. Up. Mm-hmm. His death, like, really hurt. Yeah. Cause he knows, like, he knows, like, okay, this is the last thing I'm ever going to do, but it's going to be a, for, for good purpose. And yeah. And obviously at the end, Ridley becomes the hero that fights against Jeremy Irons and just fucking yeets him over the tower with, <laughs> with the sword. Well, he yeets Damador. Right. He yeets Damador. That's what I meant. Yeah. What I, something that I think is kind of funny is that so Damador teleports back to the tower and then. Ridley jumps through the same portal and then when they get to the tower Damador shows up and then like five minutes later Ridley pops out of a different portal yes <laughs> yeah that last fight has so much so many things going on that it's like impossible to catch all of them like it's it is just so chaotic and, and crazy my favorite part of that last fight is when the dragons start to show up and Jeremy Irons is like prepare the fire and like everyone's like prepare the fire prepare the fire and then they yeah. all just go and then he goes fire and then they all just shout fire and shout fire <laughs> <laughs> it's got a verbal component hey, I don't yeah. know what to tell you you have to say also, it for it to do it <laughs> one last from a campaign thing is it's like 
all the characters show up to face down against Jeremy Irons, but he's so obviously like the big bad guy and they're horrifically underpowered to stop him. And he is literally just like flicking them away with his magic. Yes. Which I think is fun. I think it's a fun bit because mm-hmm. it's like this crew of level five adventurers just went all gung ho straight to the main villain. And it's like they, they can't beat him immediately. They have to like really use use some strategy. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's let's round it all off. Let's go to analyze that. I feel like the main for me the main thing that I got out of this movie was just the creativity and idea behind D&D and like trying to relay that enjoyment and fun to a, a wider audience. That was the main thing that I was taking away. I think the easy thing for analysis to go to in terms of D&D and fantasy in general is, you know, allegories for racism and separation mm-hmm. between g- classes um because I mean that's the whole thing that um, Thor Birch is fighting for is to make sure that, you know, the commoners and mages can then be, can then live in harmony and live together. Yeah. It's very clear that the director kind of just wanted to make this kind of like a time capsule of what it felt like to play D&D as a teenager or as a kid. Mm -hmm. But then he also wanted, he wanted to give it a little bit of sauce, you know, like you wanted to give it something a little bit more interesting to sink your teeth into. That's where the race stuff comes in, which isn't done particularly well. It's just mentioned. Like, they just say it, and then it's not yeah, really... Yeah, it's not like a huge thing. Yeah, it's not at the forefront. They just need it to be like, there's actually something a lot deeper going on here. <laughs> if you look for it, you might find it. But, like, yeah, that, that's... Because, like, even in, like, something like Bright, the racism allegory is humans versus orcs. But in this, it's two of the, like, w- broadest ranges of people I've ever seen in my life. You have mages and commoners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why are there just two groups of people? And if you have magic, you're upper class. And if you don't have magic, you are a commoner. Like, what's going... I don't get that. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of clear... Like, th- there's supposed to be a lot of division between them. But there really doesn't seem to be that much. Like, for for the most part, it's just like, okay... Th- there's just people that were thrown into an adventure together and kind of have to work to fight towards the common goal and set their differences aside. But there's nothing really forcing them apart. Yeah, and I th- I think the biggest flaw of this movie is that there is something very interesting in there if it was just, like, delved upon some more. Like, Profian, we know that he wants mages to be in control, but we don't really know why. Like, there isn't the whole Lucius Malfoy, like, they're mudbloods, like, they're they're impure because they can't use magic. Like, he just seemingly wants to be in control for the sake of being in control and there isn't much of a intentionality behind that. I think there could be something very interesting with, you know, the two thieves, like they're just in this for the money and if they went more into it's because that's what society told them they were, like society Mm -hmm. told them that they were commoners and that they couldn't rise up and couldn't be these heroes of legend Um, and then they ended up becoming the heroes of legend, I think that would have been a really interesting take on it, but it doesn't even really go there either. Yeah, or like the idea that they have to, like they're thieves, they have to steal to provide for their family because of the horrible politics and uh, government situation going on that is trying Mm -hmm. to be fixed, and they're victims of that, so they end up turning to, you know, thievery. But yeah, it doesn't, it's just like, 
We're thieves. Let's go steal from a school. Yeah. Why not? It's Friday night. We don't have anything to do for the next two days. Let's fucking go. And they, <laughs> then they just get wrapped up in this, you know, into, into the plot that way. I do like the scene at the beginning where the like lake gets lit on fire by the dragon. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Ridley's like, dude, the lake's on fire. Do you yeah. think they're like, what are they doing up there? <laughs> and snails is like, dude, I don't care. We got to go steal shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and another great way. I feel like that's a big D and D like campaign thing. Correct me if I'm wrong. The idea, like just a big random event that the entire town sees and yeah. that sets like our characters in motion to, to the mm-hmm. overall story and leads them to, they climb up this giant, fucking tower to get to which is a school i'm i guess like they said it was like a school. yeah it's a mage school <laughs> a mage school which okay. one one quick thing i actually really like the way that the cg city looks not at the end battle scene but i like how the castle looks and how the court looks and i like how like the cg even of the outside of that mage castle looks like all of them look like renderings of art pieces from the fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons book. So I thought that was, that was pretty well done. I love the way they start the movie too with CGI. Like it's like steam, but Oh, what the fuck was that? I, was it, I think it was supposed to be like the camera was like going, going over, over the ocean and yeah. then flipping up to the city. But then they realized they didn't have the ability to do that special. effect, yeah. So they just put like a fog filter over yes. a black screen. Yes. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was watching. I'm like, is this just like steam? And then it yeah. turns into the, the river and then swoops around and goes into the, um, to the uh-huh. sewers. But I was like, what is it? Like, I thought the title was going to appear and like just out yeah. of this, the, this orifice of just smoke, but like, nope. <laughs> Just, and it's weird too, because like the music like swells up as if the title is gonna appear, mm-hmm. and then it just doesn't. <laughs> what a great way to open! But yeah, I think the biggest thing with analysis is just that this movie presents a lot of ideas that could be interesting, and it just doesn't. It doesn't go anywhere with them, and it doesn't like complete what it started at least thematically. And I think a lot of that could probably be attributed to the fact that he was forced to use a very early version of the script. Mm-hmm. Like he said that he had like 15 versions, like rewrites of the script after the one they ended up having to use. I feel like probably a lot of this stuff was fleshed out a bit more in rewrite. Yeah, it definitely seems like a lot of half-assed ideas story-wise, especially the whole thing with Jeremy Irons and Thor Birch and the whole politics of the council like you said he Mm -hmm. wants them to take the power away from her and then he's gonna like use like he's gonna be able to use it but like then she just is like no that's dumb and then they're like why did you say that like it's not (laughs) it's not really clear like you get the idea that it's like okay just jeremy irons wants the wants a scepter so he can control the dragons and be the supreme ruler of the world and whatever but the way that they go about that is just very... It's superficial. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. it's superficial. It's very surface level. And I think probably as much as I love this movie, the funniest fucking scene I've ever seen that's supposed to be serious is I believe Thora Birch's character says something along the lines of, now everybody is equal. <laughs> and like <laughs> her saying that somehow just... 
made it so. It's like if at the end of Black Klansman or something, John David Washington just comes out and is like, all right, and now racism is gone. <laughs> like it's the yeah. most like, it's like, it's the most surface level ending I have ever seen yeah. for something like this. And also that's again, that's said in the city where all the dragons have just fallen on the buildings right. and are still around. She's yeah. like, everyone's equal. And it's like, could you give us a minute? We're dealing with a lot of stuff right now. Yeah. <laughs> Cause like it should have ended with her being like, well, we've got a lot of rebuilding to do, but we can do it the right way now. But no, she's just like, and now we're all equal. Yeah. And she's like, I did my job. <laughs> Good old Thora. Yeah. <laughs> the, the main purpose of this movie is just to be like, is to get like sucked up into the, this, this world that they made and to find the intricacies of D and D in the campaign. And they, and they definitely succeed in that. And like I said, this is how I think we should round it out. It's just like, would I call this movie all that good? No, but it has a spirit of movies in the early 2000s and clear creativity and energy that everyone is putting into it that you can't help, but at least watch it all the way through and be like, okay, I I'm, I'm in like I it's so much fun. It's so entertaining. Yeah, I can't comprehend how this was on Empire did like a poll, like a reader's poll. And this movie ended up in its top 50 worst films of all time list. Mm -hmm. And I, I just don't see where that's coming from. I can think of a laundry list of movies that are worse than this. Yeah, definitely. Like, I definitely agree. This movie, it has the heart. It has the creativity. The actors are putting forth everything they've got. And like you said, it's just plain entertaining, mm -hmm. which is, I also don't think it is necessarily a good movie, but, I think it might be like one of my more favorite movies. The reason I feel like it got a, a lot of bad rap is around this time, there were a lot of very annoyingly bad movies that came out. Like for like, like equating this movie to something like master of disguise, that movie is very blatant in its ripoff of other movies and also extremely annoying in the comedy that it tries to go for this movie though, as cheesy and ridiculous and over the top as it is it has a very positive vibe to it and is not doing anything really offensive or really going for the big overarching message necessarily but it's just it's fun to see especially as a DD player to see the elements that are brought in from outside campaigns and again that everyone is very clearly having a good time making it. And so there are, and again, there are way worse movies than, than this one. Yeah. And I think the reason that the campiness works so well is because it comes from such a genuine place. Like if the campiness had just been there for the sake of like, let's make an over the top movie because that's what we want to do. I don't think it would have been nearly as good. I think it pulls it off because of the fact that it's like, they're not necessarily saying let's make things campy for the sake of being funny. They're making them campy because in a D&D &D campaign, those things would be campy. Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of, of, of cheese that comes with just D&D &D in general. But yeah, because if you but if you lean into it, it, it makes it you know enjoyable like for sure all of the actors lean into it especially jeremy irons and brian 
Brian Price, I think. Well, what's it? What was the Bruce, Bruce Price? Bruce Price. Bruce Price. Bruce Price. Um, he's Bruce Payne. Bruce God, Payne. Where, where are we? I don't know. <laughs> Josh, help. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bruce Payne. They they lean into the absurdity of their villain characters. That right, and it feels like the director, like when he's giving them notes, he's saying like, when I played a D and D campaign, like the DM only had a certain number of voices, and he tried to like give it as much pepper as possible. So like dump mm-hmm. that pepper on. And this is one of my biggest issues with film criticism and, you know, just opinions against movies like this in general is that I feel like we have this assumption that cheese equals bad. And we need to just get away from that because there can be yeah. like cheesiness gives, especially like movies from like the eighties or the nineties, like, that's not the problem with those movies that they can have that gives them a certain level of charm and kind of association with the time that they were made that I like that. I like seeing that. And also it makes it feel more fun. Like I, yeah, and also, like I said, like the CGI of the dragons is cheesy and doesn't look great, but the filmmaking behind it is actually pretty fucking stellar. So mm-hmm. like you can't I think it's just wrong to say that because of the technical limitations of the time that made this made like the actual elements of this sequence look cheesy. I think it's wrong to say that that makes the movie bad when the actual filmmaking surrounding those elements is is good. Again, we're we're just so overtly critical on things of like not being as up to par as our expectations are that we lose the fact that we can just have fun with this charming movie and you can pick it apart as much as you want, but what are you really getting out of it by destroying it by because, and I mean, I've definitely, you know, been very nitpicky and destroying in some of my movie opinions, but in the case of this movie, it's, I, I don't really think it deserves as much hate. No, well, cause there's movies that are made to be picked apart, you know? Yeah. Like, The Godfather, like any of the legacy movies are like, those directors would absolutely love it for you to sit down and pick it apart and think about all the themes and think about everything he's trying to do and analyze every little frame, every little thing in the frame. But some movies are just made to be entertaining and that's okay. And if they're achieving the goal of being entertaining... I th- it's just wrong to say that this is critically bad and the opinion that this is bad is the only correct one. I don't, but uh, let's be fair though. Uh, the director of the Godfather, like who the fuck is he? He can't like, what, 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 are, his, what are his credentials? Like really? What are his qualifications? Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Like what the, <laughs> please waste my time. Um, <laughs> please waste my time. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I mean, this is, the, this is the whole reason we do this show is to understand the fact there is absolutely nothing wrong with liking a movie. If you, yeah, you can love movies for different reasons. It mm-hmm. doesn't have, you don't have to love movies because it's the most like in depth, mind shattering commentary on the world that you've ever seen. Right. Exactly. And if you like that stuff, that's great. You're still getting something out of it. And some movies do that too, but not every movie does that. And if every movie did do that, then it would, it, I wouldn't want to be a part of movies that much. Yeah, because well, it, then movies wouldn't be a medium for everyone. Yeah. That's the beauty of movies. 
Like, there's not a lot of people on in the world that just don't like movies because there is something for everyone. Uh, my name is Sullivan Harris, and frankly, I love movies that are creative. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Sully, for coming on for the best of the worst. Thank you, Josh. It's always a pleasure. That does it for this episode of Frankly, I Love Movies. It's always great to have Sullivan on as a guest. Be sure to go check him out on Ravnica Avengers, Orion Valley Productions' very own Real Play D&D podcast. It's a very special week for them as well because their season two premiere is out this Thursday, June 4th. And I gotta say, it's quite the thrill ride. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to check us out on all social media sites. We are at Frankly I Love Movies on Facebook, at Frankly Podcast on Twitter, and you can follow me on Instagram at JoshValJosh21 for all fun and exciting updates on what's going on in my life. And finally, tune in in two weeks to kick off our brand new miniseries with us, Frankly I Love Movies from Stage to Screen. Each episode will dive deep into a film adaptation of a Broadway musical to show how theater and film can indeed work in conjunction with one another. Our first episode is Fiddler on the Roof with Wicked original Broadway cast member Michelle Federer. You don't want to miss that. That'll be out in two weeks on June 16th. Until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Can I record a couple fun facts for after the credits? Sure. And I also want to tell you them. Okay. Okay, so a couple things. One, apparently the director recolored this movie for the DVD release. He he said that like coloring color grading on film is like very limiting and when they transferred it to digital for the DVD, he was able to color it more like how he wanted to. So I think we saw the recolored version. Fun uh, fact. Well, that's good enough. Also, I guess this movie overperformed in France. Ooh. <laughs> Because uh, I guess like it was released by New Line Cinema and in like when they finally went to release it, New Line just didn't advertise it at all and just dropped it in the middle of December. Whereas in France and in most other countries they released it in, they had like a seven month advertising campaign plan and it like actually did well overseas, at least compared to what they thought it would do. Interesting. I always love hearing about how movies do like exponentially well overseas as opposed to domestically yeah at times their daily budget was 15 dollars. chill <laughs> they were able to cut down costs on the movies by uh filming on location in prague so they would rent out like actual locations instead of building sets for the most part profian's bone temple that he his office is in is an actual place that's awesome it's like a basement of a cathedral in prague <laughs> we gotta go yeah, <laughs> frankly, I love movies on location. Yeah. <laughs> and also, this I just thought was kind of funny. Uh, Marlon Wayans was shooting Requiem for a Dream at the same time. So wow. he had to fly between New York City and Prague, like on a couple day basis, oh and go from shooting Requiem of a Dream <laughs> to being snails in Dungeons and Dragons. Couldn't be more polar opposite in terms of like just everything <laughs> right <laughs> and that's all i got i love it great great shit <laughs>